If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark, Mark chapter 11. We'll be in Mark 11. We'll be looking at verses uh, 12 through 19. I've entitled our time this morning, uh, Two Lessons from One Fig Tree. And this week, we're going to look at the first lesson. I, I think what we're going to encounter this fig tree in our passage today. And I want to make the case to you that uh, Jesus is doing sort of a two for one. On the one hand, it has implications for the passage in front of us today surrounding the temple. But then you'll also notice next, next week when Peter comes back, he sees the fig tree that it's withered. And then Jesus uses that same fig tree to teach us something about prayer. And so today we're going to look at the fig tree and what it teaches us about the temple. And then next week we'll look at the fig tree and what Jesus is teaching us about prayer God's word is starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Amen. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a new book, and the title of it is Talking to Strangers. And it's not your typical Malcolm Gladwell book. In this book, he actually goes on the dark side. He starts to unpack and prove that humans are more deceivable than we think. And he brings up the case about Sandra Bland. He brings up the case with Bernie Madoff. He brings up the case of Jerry Sandusky, who worked for Penn State, who was convicted of uh, inappropriate relationship with young boys. He also looks at a case that involved one of our highest ranking U.S. spies to Cuba, and we discovered that she was a double spy, which meant that we were paying her to be a spy on Cuba, but she was in Fidel Castro's back pocket and spying on us and relaying all of that information back to him. And he makes this, this statement that when you look at these high-profile cases, what you see over and over and over again is just how deceivable we are. We can see things but not see. We can assume and our assumptions are actually wrong. Things are not always what they appear, and that's what he's, the case that he's making. But I think that's also true for our passage this morning, that we, we're, we're going to unpack this idea that we're deceivable, that it's really easy for us as humans 
to uh, be deceived. And we're going to meet a Jesus who sees through the deception and diagnoses what we oftentimes don't see. And then we're going to meet Jesus who delivers us from deceit, that we might truly live fruitful lives. And so that's, that's our first point. I just want to show us how easily people are deceived if you live long enough, then you'll discover that not everything is at it, at, as it appears. Uh, a couple weeks ago, the, the fair was here, the Mississippi State Fair. And if you're like me, you take your children, and your children get these big, bright eyes because they see all the lights. They see all the big prizes like they can win. And then they come up to you and say, Dad, will you give me like $3? I'm going to win that bear. And now we're, we're adults. We, we've been down this rodeo before. We already know that, dude, you're not going to make that shot. You got a lot of things working against you. One, that rim is above regulation. Two, that ball is overinflated. So even if you touch the rim, it's going to bounce a mile. And then three, the rim isn't even a circle. Like, it's an oval. It's smushed together, and you can't see it from your vantage point. And so little do our children know that by the time we give them enough money to try to win the bear, we can just go buy a bear, right? <laughs> it's not what it appears. This happens in nature. There are plants that give off these beautiful fragrances that look beautiful. But when an insect goes closer to it to get nectar... Somehow it's magically caught and it goes down into the middle of the plant and this plant has acid that it produces that dissolves the animal, right? Things are not always what they appear. And you see it in our passage. Jesus sees a fig tree and the text actually says that it has fig leaves on the tree. And so Jesus is hungry, which I think is beautiful. Even though Jesus is God, we're getting this window into his, his identity that he is also fully human. And he gets hungry, just like you and I. He needs sleep, just like you and I. He ages, just like you and I. And so this is the second day. Remember the first day, last week was Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He went and he looked at the temple and then the Bible says he, he walked back out of Jerusalem and went back to Bethany. And we think he went to the home of, of Lazarus, Martha, Mary, sisters and brothers. This is the next day, the very next day, he's walking back into Jerusalem and he hadn't eaten breakfast. And he lives in a part of the world where you just have olive trees and fig trees right there to just go and take a fig. And so Jesus sees leaves and he assumes that there are figs on the tree. But upon closer examination, it says that there are none. There are none. Now, there seems to be a contradiction in the passage. On the one hand, he sees the fig leaves and, and assume, is assuming, I'm guessing, that there are some figs on the tree. He draws near, but the text also says, but it was not the season for figs. So how do you reconcile that? One horticulturist, he, he writes this. He says that that the classic fig tree in Jesus' day would have given off figs twice a year. One would have been the early crop in the late spring. It would have been 
the, the breva, right? That's kind of the name for it. It's the inferior fig. It's the fig from last year's shoot that is still there. It's inferior. Now, later in the fall, you would get kind of the ripen, like this is the real deal. This is when figs come in full bloom. And so the way we try to reconcile this is we think that Jesus sees this tree that has leaves, and this is supposed to be the season of breva fruit. This is just kind of the foretaste of what's to come. And Jesus goes there, and there's nothing. And Jesus curses the tree. Now, there's a famous atheist. His name is Bertrand Russell. And when he reads that part of Mark, he writes this book, and, and the name of the book is Reasons Why I'm Not a Christian. And one of the reasons he puts why he's not a Christian is what happens right here. He says, what a waste of power. How can Jesus be so brash? This tree was out of season, so why would he do this to the tree? Why wouldn't he magically make figs appear? And he says, for this reason, I'm not a Christian. And so he wipes out all of Christianity because of this. Now, that's not true because Jesus is the prophet par excellence. And what you discover in the prophetic writings is this correlation between nature and Israel. Jesus did this, right? When, he, when he's teaching us about anxiety. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink or wear. But what does he say? He says, look at who? The lilies of the field and look at the birds of the heavens. And Jesus makes a statement. If your father clothes the lilies, which he does, if your father feeds the birds, which he does, how much more will he clothe and care for us, O oh, us of little faith? And so Jesus is saying there is a spiritual lesson you learn in nature when humans are struggling with anxiety. And I think the same thing is going on here. This fig tree is being used by Jesus to teach us a lesson about the spiritual condition of Israel. Now, why am I making that jump? Because Isaiah chapter 5, that language is there. It's also in Jeremiah. I'll read it right now. Jeremiah 8, 13. And listen closely. When I would gather my people, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Or what about Micah chapter 7? I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the land. There is no one upright among mankind. Do you hear what's happening? God is likening Israel to a fig tree or to a vine of grapes. And he is saying, though I planted them, though I've done all of this, when I come to get fruit, there is no fruit to be found. The godless are gone out of the land. In other words, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Micah are all using this imagery that nature is painting a picture of the spiritual state of Israel. And so, here is what we know about the temple. If you were a first century Jew, 
and you were riding into Jerusalem, it was the most beautiful edifice in the city. Why? Because Herod, not Herod Antipas, the son, but Daddy Herod, who started this massive building campaign, who wanted to go down in history and be remembered for his architectural designs and his building projects, he made it his ambition to build the most beautiful place of worship. That's why two chapters later in Mark 13, do you want to know what impresses the disciples? It's the beauty of the temple. Master, look at this stonework on this temple. And what does Jesus say? It's going to all be torn down. And so if you were a Jew, the temple and the structure, it gave the appearance of majesty, of awe, of wonder, of communing with God, right? It gave off that perception. But then what does Jesus do when he draws near? Is he pleased with it? No. He overturns tables. He kicks out money changers. He stops people from doing everything they were doing. That does not sound like what they were externally matched up with what was going on internally. When the Lord of glory came to his house, he found the house lacking fruit, just like the fig tree. Now, let that kind of wash over you. Because when I read it, you can read it and point the finger at them people back there and say, how could they? Or you can read it like we should read the Bible. They were deceived. When they woke up that morning to make their sacrifice, when they went to the temple to buy their lamb, when they exchanged their money, they actually thought they were doing some things that pleased the Lord until the Lord showed up and said it's not pleasing. Now, that ought to wash over us because bare minimum, it means that we have the capacity to be deceived, not just at the state fair, not just in nature, but when it comes to religion. Did not the Apostle Paul, who was murdering Christians or playing a part in that, if you would have asked him what he was doing, if he felt like it was right, you want to know what he would have told you at that point? Before he met the living Jesus, he would have thought that every single thing I'm doing is right and justified until he met Jesus. And that's what's happening in this passage. They are thinking that what they're doing is right and justified until Jesus shows up. And he says, now, brothers and sisters, you've been deceived. Now, if you're here this morning, can you at least entertain the idea, if you're not a Christian, that maybe you're deceived? 
Maybe whatever religion you're holding to. Maybe if Jesus were to show up, he would do the same thing. He would say, it's wrong. It's false. It's fake. It's phony. And you are buying a bill of goods that are worthless. If Jesus would do this to his own temple, to his own people practicing Judaism as they were, what do you think it means for all other religions? We're deceivable. That's what we're seeing in the passage. The second thing we see is that Jesus sees and he masterfully diagnoses the problem. He's the seer. Now, remember last week, what did Jesus do when he rode in on the donkey? It says that he walked into the temple and he did what? He looked around. He looked around. And then they walked right back out of Jerusalem and back to Bethany. This is now the second day. Jesus has seen everything he needs to see. And today when he comes, he's not coming to see and observe. He's coming to destroy and diagnose. Now I know what this temple system is about. I'm not being quiet. If you think Jesus is meek and weak and lowly and is not strong and mighty, then you have a rude awakening. He comes in here on the second day after having already seen everything he needs to see. He sees through the facade. And is that not what Hagar calls God? That way back in Genesis, that when she has conceived Ishmael with Abraham, she runs away and the Lord comes to her. And what does she call the Lord? El Roy. You're the God who sees. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't just mean he takes note of what's going on. That actually means he takes note of what's going on and he can sift through it all. And guess what? You and I are not always wise enough to do that on our own. We see the deceit, and you start to see Jesus in our passage who is seeing. And so he draws near to the temple. I see your eloquent bricks. I see all the things going on. But let me get a little close and see what's really going on. Now, when you think about the temple, what do you think about? I think about animal sacrifice. That's the first thing that comes to my mind, right or wrong. That was the place, if you were a Jew, where God's righteousness and mercy met. God is perfect, and God is holy, and God hates sin, and God is also loving and merciful and kind. And what you see in the temple through the ministry of the priest is this coming together. Sinners could come into and near God, but you could not come empty-handed. And so you would come bringing an offering, bringing a choice animal from your herd, and you would bring that to the priest. And what the priest would do is put his hand on you and put his hand on the animal that you brought. 
And he would cut the throat of the animal and the animal would die and the blood would be thrown onto the altar. And Leviticus 1 says this is for the atonement of their sin. In other words, this is not animal cruelty. Just like when he curses this tree, this is not botanical cruelty. Something else is kind of going on behind all of that. It's God's way of taking your guilt and putting it somewhere else. That you who are guilty might have sins atoned for. Now, in the beauty of God, he did not require every person to bring the same thing. If you were wealthy, you had to bring an animal from your herd. And if you were poor, you could bring a pigeon or a turtle dove, little cheap birds. Did you notice what Mark says they're exchanging in the temple? Look at the end of verse 15. He overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The poor people. These are the offerings that Jesus made, that Mary made for Jesus, for purification. She came with pigeons and turtle doves. Now, here's the question. Why are they doing this? Why are they selling these animals and exchanging money to begin with? You got to think about what week it is. It's Passover week. Every Jew had to come to Jerusalem on Passover week. And here's the thing. We think if Jerusalem was a city of 500,000 people during Passover week, it was like yesterday when Southern and Jackson State played. And everybody's kind of coming from Louisiana to the game. It was kind of one of those things. It's like Oxford. When you go up there in Oxford during the week, it's like, I don't know how many people. But when the weekend game comes, you can't move around in the city. Think about Jerusalem that way. That this is a special thing, and it's not football. And people are coming, and they're traveling. But here's the thing. You can't come empty-handed. If you were a Jewish male 20 years or older, you had to come and pay the temple tax. And you had to pay it once a year. And guess what? You couldn't pay the temple tax with Roman currency. You had to pay it with a shekel. If it had a face of Caesar on it, it did not go into the temple. And so no matter where you came, what country you came from, what city you came from, when you got to Jerusalem to pay the temple tax as a male, you had to pay it in temple currency. That's why you got to exchange the money. But then you couldn't come empty handed because you had to bring atonement. You had to bring animals for sacrifice. And here's the thing. God didn't want no mangy animal that fell alongside the road as you made that 60-mile hike into Jerusalem. If your animal fell off a cliff and broke his leg, he dinner now. You can't offer him. If your two animals got to fighting and one of them gored the other, you can't offer now one of them, Right? And so imagine traveling 50 miles, 100 miles, and you got to exchange the money, and you got to keep eyes on your children because they're traveling with you, and you got to keep up with all of these animals, keep them in file, and you got to make sure they don't get gored and they don't fall off. 
you, do you see how much of a hassle that would have been? Didn't Jesus get lost on a journey from Jerusalem? His folks forgot him. He was way back at the temple. They, they didn't know where he was. We're getting these clues to how hard travel was to do all the things that God requires of you. And so that's why you need people in the temple to exchange money. I'll make it easy on you, dog. You ain't got to exchange nothing. You just bring your money here. I'm going to make me a little bit of money off the top, and I'm going to give you what you need, and you good. Or, hey, you don't have to bring no pigeon. I raise them. You don't have to bring no lamb. I grow them, right? I, I breed them, and I will only put the choice lambs out. In other words, this was for convenience. It made it convenient for people to have the service that these people were offering. And here's the thing. Doesn't that sound, oh, what a wonderful ministry. <laughs> it's an important ministry, right? How did Jesus feel about it? Kicking over tables? Kicking over chairs? Don't, to me, it don't sound like he's too pleased with that. Now, here's the question. He's not just seeing what's going on. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he respond that way? Victor Epstein, it's our reflection quote. He has a 58-page article, uh, and in it he writes, Rabbinic evidence indicates that the shops for selling articles for sacrifices were originally located on the Mount of Olives. The fact that they were in the temple was a recent innovation by the high priest Caiaphas. If this is true, it helps us understand Jesus' righteous anger. He is not opposing the transactions themselves. It is their location in the temple and the subsequent disruption of worship that is problematic to him. You hear what he's saying? It's not what they're doing that he has a problem with. It's where they're doing it and what they're doing and what it's interrupting. And I think Jesus puts two reasons out here why he's not pleased, why he's angered. And the first reason is where is it happening? All right. Greg, here's a picture of the temple. Not a picture. Here's an artistic rendering of the temple. So we're going to start here. Uh-oh, how do I turn this on? Are we good? There we go. So this right here is the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in here, and that's once a year, right? But out here is what we would call the court of the priest. If you were a priest, you could come through this wall, and you could be here. And if you were a man, then this section was relegated for you. And right here is the women's courtyard. But here's the thing. All of this was for Jews. Now, if you were a Gentile, guess where you could come? You couldn't come through these walls, but you could come right here in the court of the Gentiles. Now, what's going on here? If you set up shop, 
to sell your pigeons and your lambs and to exchange money right here? What brought you convenience as a Jew? What did that do to the Gentiles? It pushed them out because it was convenient for you. It forced the one place where Gentiles could come to be a rat race. They can't worship there because of convenience. Thank you, Greg. Now, did you notice what Jesus says in our passage? He says, is it not written that my house will be a house of prayer for who? All nations. And you have turned the very place where all nations can come because of your convenience into a den of robbers. He sees through it. And not only was, was it where they did, it's what they were doing. What is the atonement for? Why does God pardon your sin? Is it not for access? That we who were far off might now draw near and commune with God? Isn't it like what happened in the garden that, that Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked out? But then God says, hey, through the work of, 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 of Jesus, I'm going to build a bridge so that you who were far off will have your sins dealt with. Now you can draw near and commune with God. You can come to him and call him our father, that you can commune with him and share your heart with him and be intimate with him and hear him speak to you. You are not far off anymore. And here is what you see in the passage. There is a whole lot of practicing business and there's a whole little amount of prayer. You got people doing stuff, but not drawing near to God. And Jesus says, for those two reasons, for what you're doing to the Gentiles and this place of reverent worship, of joy, of awe, of wonder, of communing, it's now noisy and busy. You see what Jesus does? He's not deceived. Not only is he not deceived, he's showing us the problem. Which leads us to our last point. Now that we know that we're deceivable, now that we know that Jesus sees and he diagnoses, the last thing is that we have a Jesus who delivers us that we might be fruitful. What does Jesus do after he diagnoses what's going on? Everything he does is to deliver them from their sin and blindness. And before we look at what he does for them, it's important to remember this is not just a story that they did. 
we're reading the Bible wrongly if we're pointing the finger at those people and thinking that we ourselves are not susceptible to the same sins. You heard the story about the elephant and the giraffe? Probably have. It's a fable I've heard a few times. But the story goes like this. There was a giraffe. He was a wood maker. And he built his own house. And because he's a giraffe, he built his house to suit him. So the windows are very tall because giraffes are tall. The entrances to each room, they're narrow because giraffes are taller than they are wide. And the hallway in the giraffe's house, they're also narrow, right? Because again, the giraffe is tall and not wide. And so one day the giraffe is in his wood shop and he notices Mr. Elephant walking down the street. And he knows Mr. Elephant. He thinks he's a cool fella because they work on the PTA together. But Mr. Elephant has never been in Mr. Giraffe's home. And so Mr. Giraffe has this bright idea. Why don't I invite Mr. Elephant into my house? Let's be friends. And so Mr. Giraffe invites Mr. Elephant into his house. And there's a problem instantly. Mr. Elephant is more wider than he is tall. And so Mr. Elephant can't get through the door of the wood shop. And so Mr. Giraffe says, hey, that's not a problem. I designed my wood shop and I brought equipment in that's wider than you. All I got to do is pop off this boat and take off this panel. And this door widens up. Come on in. And so Mr. Giraffe, he did that. He took the boats off, took the panels off. And Mr. Elephant came right into his wood shop. And they talked for hours. And then Mr. Giraffe got a phone call. His wife said, honey, it's your boss. And so Mr. Giraffe tells Mr. Elephant, can you make yourself at home? I need to go upstairs and I need to take this call. And so Mr. Elephant starts to make himself at home. And so he walks around the wood shop and every time he walks, he knocks into something and something falls. Mr. Elephant tries to make himself at home and walk up the steps. And when he got on the steps, the steps started to creak and shake. Mr. Elephant tried to go through the doorpost to get in Mr. Giraffe's home, but it wouldn't budge. It wouldn't move. And so Mr. Elephant jumped off the steps and crashed into the wall and all the drywall on the home started to shake. Mr. Giraffe hears all of this going on and he comes downstairs and says, brother, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, well, you told me to make myself at home. I'm trying to make myself at home. He says, oh, I see the problem. You need to be a little niftier on your feet. Why don't you go take a class at Pure Bar? Go take some ballet classes, right? Get nifty on your feet, right? Then you can walk through the house and not make things break. Okay, you got a little girth about you? Why don't you go to CrossFit or Orange Theory? Planet Fitness, they got the gym membership, $10 a month. Let's, let, let's shed some of that girth. Let's lose some weight. And Mr. Elephant is like, but I'm an elephant. And I can't fit through your doors that are narrow and tall. And I can't come into your home unless I become exactly like you. And since that's not happening, I deduce that your home is not made for people like me, the elephant, to dwell. You want to know the Achilles heel of the American church? Is that you had a lot of churches 
with steeples and crosses. And they might even put, we want this to be a house of prayer for all nations. And people who look like me couldn't come in. You see? And it's not just ethnocentrism that has plagued the American church. We're doing a Sunday school class right now on how do we love and serve families with a disability. And here is what we're discovering. What we think makes life convenient for us over here, it makes life inconvenient for our brothers and sisters who can't see, who can't walk, who can't hear well. And all what we're doing is, is some of this, I think it can be just ignorance, but we're worshiping the God of convenience. We want things to be convenient for us, and we don't understand that when we make convenience Lord and Master, we're always isolating somebody else who is not like us. And so Jesus is building a house that's both tall and guess what? It's also wide. It's a both and. What about the prosperity gospel? It's not just ethnocentrism. That's not just the Achilles heel of the church. What about now? We might not be selling animals and exchanging money, but I wonder if Jesus walked in some churches who all they talked about was money and sowing the seed to get your blessing and having enough faith. We're, we're selling you lies. If Jesus were to come in some of those churches, he would call them the same thing he's calling what was happening in that temple. This is a den of highway robbery. You are selling people dreams and you're mischaracterizing the one true gospel. He would come to the prosperity church and say, I have an issue with you. And would he not? Come to those who are busy, who forget to abide. You see, you got to think about what the business was in this passage. Somebody had to raise the animals. Somebody had to sort the animals. Somebody had to know the currency, currency laws. Somebody had to get in there and set up the tables. Somebody had to do all this stuff, and it was a business, but it also made them busy so that when Jesus came, they were busy, but they weren't praying. Isn't that a danger? More meetings, more ministries to start, more things to do, more things to get done on the list. More, 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 more. And then you look up and our prayer lives are weak. And we're not spending time in silence. And all we do is do what is public, what people see, and that lost beauty of drawing near to God in prayer, on our knees, on our faces, in dependence to him because no one sees it. 
It's a lost art. It's not just them folks. This is us. And what Jesus does is deliver us from us. You remember the old fire drill, stop, drop, roll, right? If you're ever in a fire, remember these three things. It'll save your life. Stop. Don't try to run. Don't try to outrun a fire. You're on fire. You will, it will spread and consume you. Stop. Hit the ground. Drop. And keep rolling and rolling and rolling. Stop, drop, roll will save your life. I'm going to give you three things that will save your soul. Jesus teaches, Jesus ceases, and Jesus keeps it. That will save your soul. What do I mean he teaches? Did you notice what he said? That at least three different times in our passage, Jesus is not just doing this stuff, he's teaching. He says, is it not written that my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Ding, 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 ding. When you hear that, is it not written? He's quoting the Old Testament. And here is what Jesus does in the face of them being deceived. Do you want to know what sifts through the deceit? It's not a self-help manual. It's the word of God. It's pure. And it's true. And it's good. And that's what Jesus does when he sees what is being deceitful in the temple. He says, I know the truth. And the truth is my father's house should be a house of prayer for all nations. Did you notice how the religious leaders responded? They wanted to kill him. You want to know why? Because the other half of Isaiah 56, it talks about the nations coming in you want to know who he indicts on the second half of that chapter? The religious leaders. Shots have been fired. They know exactly what Jesus is doing. He is calling them out. And I hold you responsible. And when the people hear it, who do they side with? They are astonished at his teaching. What will protect you and I from being deceived is going to be this word right here. It's going to do a work on y'all as it does a work on me. And it's going to always illumine the counterfeit. Did you notice how Jesus ceases everything in this passage? No more selling, no more buying, no more coming, no more going, no more bringing anything in this temple. And you know what he's going to do 40 years later? He's going to stop this temple altogether. There's a war in A.D. 70. Some 40 years after this moment right here, somebody comes into Jerusalem. And you know what they do? They destroy the whole temple. And guess what? It ain't been rebuilt yet. Ain't nobody out here offering Sacrifices no more. He says, I'm bringing an end to it all. Stop. Why? Because he keeps it. 
He knows what the Father ultimately wants is not your perfect lamb that you raise. And he knows what the Father ultimately wants is not you exchanging your currency to make the temple tax. He says what the Father ultimately wants is me. I'm the perfect priest, and I'm the perfect lamb, and I'm going to give my life in exchange for yours. And when we get that, that moves us. It moves us. It changes us. And so if we're wrestling with desiring convenience, remember the gospel. Jesus was greatly inconvenienced that he might make your eternity convenient forever. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down in him on the cross. When you're worried about money and profit, remember that for your sake, he who was rich became poor, that in him you might become rich. He will never leave you, never, ever forsake you. You don't have to believe the trash out there. You are already wealthy. You are already his. And your eternity will be absolutely beautiful. And when you feel the urge to perform and to work and to stay busy, hear the whisper of Jesus. It's finished. I've done it all. I don't need you to work yourself in the ground. I've done the work. Now you be like the story in Mary and Martha. You choose the greater and you abide in me and you commune with me. You do that, we're bearing fruit together. Your outside will match the inside. Who you project to be will be who you really are, says Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for your word. Pray that you would encourage your people. For those of us who don't know you, I pray that today might be a day of salvation. Be with us as we sing what a good, good father you are. May that be the song of our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.